I wanted to give everyone a formal welcome to The Vegetable Beat. It is August 25th, and my name is Ben Whirling of Michigan State University, and I will be your host today. Our guest today will be James Sedecker. Thank you for being with us today, James. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So with that housekeeping out of the way, I wanted to dive into it, James. I wanted to ask you to introduce yourself and what you do and then also kind of define the the scope of the problem because we all know we've got a problem, but just, you know, what's the dollar value of it and and when is it going to justify us taking action? Absolutely. Well, thanks again for having me today, Ben. Um, As you said, my name is Dr. James D. Decker. I'm the director of the MSU Upper Peninsula Research and Extension Center here in Chatham, Michigan. I've been here for two and a half years, and prior to that, I was with Extension in Presque County working on field crops for about eight years. Um, I encountered the wildlife damage issue um, when I started working with Extension in 2012 and uh, took interest in it at that time working in a part of the state that has very high deer densities a lot of crop damage but also the issue of bovine tuberculosis which is uh, uh, hosted in the white-tailed deer herd and spread to cattle in that part of michigan really uh, spending a lot of time trying to understand this issue the cost of wildlife damage and then whatever mitigation tools might be available and successful for growers and, and sharing that information back out So to provide a little bit of uh, background on this issue and and maybe try to put some numbers to it for folks, wildlife damage is a complex and really a value-laden problem. So it's uh, pretty difficult to understand. We've got multiple passionate stakeholder groups that are involved in wildlife issues and in agriculture. Um, And you've got a lot of different agencies that are involved in regulating uh, agriculture and wildlife. When we think about the cost of wildlife, wildlife damage in agriculture, the data that's available is really quite limited. A lot of it is based on survey uh, surveys of growers asking them what species are doing damage, how much damage is occurring, and what the cost of that is. So we uh-huh. all know that survey data can be um, somewhat suspect, but a number of people have tried to estimate uh, over the years what that looks like. Some of the best numbers, uh, Conover in 2002 estimated that overall wildlife-related economic losses to agriculture in the U.S. exceeded $4.5 billion in 2002. You know, and that would be all uh, wildlife species, all different cropping systems and livestock systems. Um, Some more recent data um, uh, from uh, 2000, there was publication out of Wisconsin that looked at just white-tailed deer. And they estimated in that one state for one species, they were talking about $28 million a year um, at that time around the year 2000 for, for deer in Wisconsin. Other folks have looked at uh, other species. Uh, our colleague at MSU, Dr. Catherine Lindell, has done a lot of work in birds and fruit and uh, looked at estimates from, for, for different states that in some cases are in the hundreds of millions of dollars um, wow. for different fruit systems. And then uh, a really cool uh, paper that just came out in 2020 from McKee et al. Um, looked at commodities, not vegetables in this case, uh, soybeans, corn, and wheat. But they used crop insurance data to try to get into uh, understanding this cost. And they figured uh, $324 million for soybeans, $194 million for corn, and $27 million for wheat uh, on an annual basis in those commodity crops across the United States. So a lot of numbers there. And again, it's pretty hard to pin down particularly when we're talking about survey data, because a lot of times there's real differences between sort of perceived and real losses to wildlife damage. So it sounds like there's a lot of cash that's that's coming out of growers' pockets. You may or may not know it. A lot of growers know it, but some may not. But it's also it's important to think about when you're thinking about the cost of management strategies. And then also for other folks who, like you said, are enjoying wildlife or, mm. or coming at it from a different angle to understand that. 
Big time. That's it's really critical because there's also efforts to quantify the value of wildlife. So a lot of these species, for example, are game species. They're bringing in revenue of hunter licenses. And when folks travel to, you know, rural areas to pursue that sport, they're spending money in those communities and boosting those economies. So um, we really need to start looking at wildlife damage as a cost benefit issue. And that's how we need to analyze these problems. Just like we do for other pests, right? We use economic thresholds. Well, the, the calculation of such a threshold I think is a lot more complicated with wildlife because we're talking about more of a economic, uh, macroeconomic or community scale impact, but um, absolutely have to start to put those numbers to it. Um, I just, I, I do want to say too, um, we did a, a, a small survey in fall of 2019 that focused on mostly Michigan, but some other uh, Midwest responses as well, asking people about um, what species were doing damage and what they thought about this issue as kind of a needs assessment. Quick numbers from that, uh, 81% of the responses there of, of 243 responses uh, said that this was an important issue for them and their farm. And 59% of the respondents said that the resources that were available to address it are inadequate. So certainly growers feel like there's a need here when we talk about wildlife damage. And then asking them uh, what species were doing damage, the predominant responses were about deer or elk, 47% uh, of, of those cases. And birds were a strong second at 26% of the responses being related to bird damage. And uh, that was 12% songbirds, 7% migratory birds, and 7% turkeys. Beyond that, the numbers are much smaller for rodents, uh, predators, bears, etc. Um, so certainly deer and birds are what most growers are thinking about. Thanks, James. That's really helpful for framing the discussions. I agree with you of the varmints out there that cause issues and vegetables. Deer and birds are right up there. One of the reasons we're happy to have you here today is that as I wear my hat as an extension educator and I think about integrated pest management, I often think about insects and what we do there is we go out, we scout either formally or informally, you know, ask are they there um, and how many of them and make a decision about reacting. So we react, we decide if it's there and then decide to do something like an insecticide application. Now there's another end of the spectrum to pest management. Often I think of that in terms of um, disease management where it's really preventive, where you have to set your crop up in a way that minimizes disease and then even fungicides are preventive. And then weeds are kind of in between. They're a blend of both, you know, keeping that weed seed bank small, but then reacting with cultivation herbicides. But wildlife management somehow, it doesn't fit as neatly into this spectrum. And so where, where do you view it as falling in this spectrum? And how is it different from managing our typical pests? Mm. It's a really good question. Unfortunately, um, for whatever reason, the concepts of integrated pest management have been rarely or inadequately applied to the issues of wildlife damage. Um, but actually, in, in my opinion, the principles of IPM are actually more important uh, when we're talking about wildlife than maybe when we're talking about some of these other pests. So IPM really, you know, the objective is to try to mitigate risks while managing pests, right? And I think um, whether we're talking about financial cost, resistance or habituation in the case of wildlife, maintaining uh, beneficial populations or the benefits that come with some of these wildlife species, um, protecting environmental quality, human health, all of those same concerns apply when we're talking about wildlife damage. Um, and 
for the same reasons, we try to things do things like uh, applying advanced knowledge of pest ecology when we're managing wildlife damage, anticipating, preventing damage where possible rather than reacting, um, and then um, implementing thresholds where possible where we can actually quantify those costs and benefits, and um, implementing multiple control tactics. All of those things are as critical for wildlife damage, if not more critical. And I think um, one thing, you know, I mentioned the, the complexity of wildlife damage management and, and the aspect of it being value-laden. The thing that really makes wildlife damage management unique relative to other pest complexes is the social component. And the real affinity that uh, some stakeholder groups, individuals feel for some of these species, how charismatic they can be, how um, important they are for certain recreational activities like hunting or you know nature viewing, birding, for example, um, and how passionate people can be about those things. So you know it's very rare that you have a stakeholder group stepping forward to say you know those aphids are my friends, right? We need uh -huh. those aphids, but um, you have many, many people that are putting their money and their uh, political power behind maintaining high densities of many of these species. And for that reason, it's very important that we consider the social component and work that into our integrated pest management framework as how do we deal with the value of these species and uh, the social dynamics of stakeholder groups that are interested in maintaining high levels or high densities of these species. Gotcha. So what you're saying is that it is still IPM. Um, it's just that there are people who care about, you know, when we're, when we're killing aphids, for example, no one really cares, but there are people who value things like deer that they want to have a say too. And so you have to, so growers have to navigate that situation, which is whenever human values get involved, it can be a lot trickier. Yeah. Yeah. Much trickier. Yeah. And, and, you know, whole, uh, land uses and approaches to land management have been designed and implemented to promote these very species that are causing damage on our farms. Yep. So, you know, very common situation, a grower is farming right next to a hunt club that is actively, you know, improving habitat, feeding wildlife, etc. So you have very, very uh, opportunities for a lot of direct conflict that can occur. I wanted to dig into a couple of the uh, things that growers do to manage wildlife. And so one, one way that growers go about it is by basically excluding wildlife, keeping them out. And the most common example we can all think of is fencing for deer. Now, one question that, that might come up is, how far do I need to go with an investment to make it effective? So one short-term solution might be, you know, for deer, put up some temporary electric fencing, uh, maybe three-stranded wire on step-in posts. But one thing I wanted to ask you is, are, are taking those temporary measures worth it? Or if I'm a grower and I know I've got a problem, should I just bite the bullet now and invest in, you know, that 10-foot tall permanent structure? So you're right. I mean, I think exclusion is in some ways the gold standard. Um, a lot of people immediately uh, turn their thinking to fencing or other types of exclusion when they think about dealing with wildlife damage. I think there's good reasons for that. You know, if, uh, if you have very low tolerance um, based on the cropping system that you're in or the market that you're uh, selling your product into, uh, food safety concerns, whatever it is, if you, have, if you have low tolerance or zero tolerance for damage, then uh, full-on exclusion fencing is probably the way to go. And I think, unfortunately, um, many growers will 
wait too long and mess around uh, with too many other potential solutions or tools uh, before they get to the point of exclusion fencing. You know, not that uh, that is the thing for everybody, but um, I do think that even with a pretty big capital outlay for a large fencing system, that oftentimes the return on that is going to be quite quick, particularly when we're talking about high value specialty yeah. crops. So I think fences really can pay. Now, um, there are a lot of options. You mentioned a couple, you know, t temporary fencing versus a more permanent fencing. Well, um, there's all different sorts of exclusion tools out there. Some of it is perimeter fencing. Some of it is, you know, protecting individual uh, plots or crops uh -huh. in the cases of trees. Um, but um, there's a great paper from Verkauter and et al. that has an awesome table that I love to share with people. And what's neat about it is it looks at different fencing systems and it lays out the cost per foot, the height that they looked at of the fencing, efficacy, longevity, and maintenance level. Huh, cool. And and so I think those are really the key things to consider when you're thinking about fencing um, because usually it's a trade-off. So if I go for a really you know high efficacy, low maintenance uh, type of fence, maybe I'm going to be paying more or maybe it's not going to last as long. So it's hard to find the perfect fencing uh, setup for, for all contexts or crops or farms. Um, but I think you really have to look at those different variables and think about what's my labor availability? What's my capital availability? What is the amount of damage that's occurring on, on average in this crop? And how much am I going to be saving or increasing the value of, of my crop by implementing some of these tools? So that's really, I think, the way to approach it. And then in general, too, just a general principle is thinking about the perimeter, perimeter to area ratio and trying to make your fencing as efficient as possible in terms huh. of um, the amount of area that you're protecting for the amount of perimeter fencing that you're installing and and uh in general a, a regular shape like a square shape is going to be most efficient and the larger the area that you're protecting uh within that fence is also going to save you on cost yeah the less edge there is for the area you're protecting the cheaper it's going to be we did have a question james and the question was about strength of the fence so thank you for your question, Andrews, because there are a lot of different fencing types needed. And as a small grower, something you might be familiar with is chicken wire. It's pretty readily available and it might work in some situations. But so what strength of, of fencing is needed maybe for something like a deer and something like a smaller varmint, like a small vertebrate, like a rabbit or, or woodchuck? Mm. That's a great question. I can't speak directly to that question in terms of the numbers, but certainly when you go and look at fencing suppliers, there's a lot of information out there about the uh, you know tensile strength of the material and what species they the fencing material might be appropriate for. Something to think about, though, this is maybe a bit of a non-answer, but what I found is that uh, certainly the fencing material and the species that's going to be challenging it is critical to understand and to, to match that up appropriately. But oftentimes, it's actually more about sort of risk versus reward for the wildlife. And, and this is maybe particularly uh. in the case of deer. So if there's a good alternative food source available, an uh, animal like a deer is going to be much less interested in challenging a barrier like a fence than they would be if you're the only game in town. Huh. So to illustrate that, um, we do a lot of exclusion work to try to quantify damage and we set up small exclusion cages, usually like six by six feet, five by five feet, and we fence those areas out in field crops. 
One year we did that in an area, this was in soybeans, where it was the only soybean field for a few miles around, and it was a very small field. I think it was like six acres or something. Well, the deer ate all the soybeans outside the cages, and then they started going in the cages. And actually jumping into, from everything I could tell, jumping huh. into a six by six foot exposure to eat soybeans, which, <laughs> I mean, never in my mind would I have thought a deer would do that. It's like a ninja deer. Exactly, yeah. So it's not just about the animal, the species, and and the fencing system. It's about how bad they want to get in there. <laughs> yeah. And their behavioral differences and sort of, you know, landscape scale uh, elements that are going to contribute to that. So it's a little bit about what's inside the fence, not just what the fence is. Yeah, what else is out there in the salad bar that they could sample? Yeah, and I think we can use that to our advantage oftentimes in agriculture by um, providing a an acceptable alternative. So almost like a trap crop uh, type scenario where you can lessen uh, your need to invest in exclusion or the quality of the materials that you're using for exclusion if there's a good alternative. And you can huh. facilitate that in some cases. Do you know of any growers who plant food plots? Yep. Field huh. perimeters, uh, separate plots, food plots in the woods. Um, yeah, leveraging your neighbors <laughs> probably Got not it. appreciated but depending on what they're up to Got yeah it. interesting I, w I wanted to ask you some about something james and that is the behavioral component of this this will come up when we talk about harassment and sprayable options as well so um, one thing i've heard is that once deer or other vertebrates like birds learn there's a good food present it becomes more difficult to keep them out so is is timing also important of when you put that fence up or if it's a temporary structure yeah, in, in general, whatever you're doing to try to mitigate wildlife damage, I think um, it, it's quite important to implement that early on and if at all possible before the damage starts. So it really kind of goes back to the IPM principles again in terms of prevention. You know, we have uh, a little bit higher thinking uh, species that we're dealing with here in many cases, and they are learning as they go and they are sampling different crops to determine if they are a good food source. So yes, whether it's fencing or other mechanical deterrents, repellents, getting those things in place before the damage occurs, that means that we have to anticipate damage, right? We have to know uh, what species are causing damage, what crops are susceptible, when the, in the year that's likely to occur. And so using all that information like we do in other integrated pest management systems to really drive our decision making in terms of the controls that we're selecting and the timing of implementing those controls is is massive uh, it's very difficult to change uh, an animal's pattern of behavior versus directing it from the onset i wanted to ask you about a few specific exclusion methods so birds and sweet corn moving kind of from mm. the deer to the bird um, are a big issue one thing that has been talked about is is basically after pollination is finished removing the tassels so they don't have a place to perch do you have any experience with that as a control measure and if you don't that's okay so I haven't done it myself, but um, the folks that have done a lot of work on sweet corn and birds is Cornell. And they have some great publications out there where they've looked at multiple different approaches to addressing bird damage in sweet corn. Uh -huh. And detasseling was one of the most effective strategies that they tested in that uh, multi-year on-farm study. So I think it's it's really a very cool solution in that you know simply altering the, the habitat quality, if you will, in a way that 
that adds some labor costs and maybe equipment costs for growers, but uh, otherwise does not negatively impact the crop, was quite elegant and, and really quite effective. Now, would the birds eventually evolve, you know, beyond that and, and learn that, well, you know, just because that perch isn't there doesn't mean that the crop isn't ready. But um, animals are oftentimes, you know, uh, using visual clues and the birds, it seems especially a lot of visual clues on how they are gauging the crop, what's a good food source, what isn't. And that tassel, I think, is an indication of maturity to them and also facilitates oh. their, their movement throughout the field. And so uh, I think that's a really nice option. In that same study, they also looked at a few other things, uh, a repellent uh, product. I think that was methylenthranolate in that study. And then they also used the tube men or the uh, air dancers. And the air dancers actually were the second most effective treatment that they found in the sweet corn. Huh. Um, they got me so inspired that I bought one this year and uh, huh. I set it up in our grain hemp uh, where we have a lot of bird damage from huh. doves and finches. And so far it's been okay for us. It's only been up for a couple of days. The problem that we have is that we're running it on a generator and burning tons of, of fuel in the process. Yeah. But uh, if you have electricity available out near a field, uh, those air dancers can be effective. And if, if folks don't know what we're talking about, imagine a used car lot with that big yeah. guy flopping around. It's just a fan with a, a nylon tube that's made up to look like a guy. We've got one 20 feet, 20 feet tall with the all-weather base is a critical oh. <laughs> critical upgrade, the all-weather fan base. <laughs> um, the show is providing help not only to vegetable growers, but also used car lot owners. So. Yes, and whoever sells these darn air dancers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings up the two other things I wanted to talk about, and one of them is, is sprayable options. So when you mentioned the, um, the product in sweet corn, I know there's one called avian control, mm -hmm. but there's also various things marketed as deer repellents. So are any of these products, you know, effective and something growers should think about investing in? And if they are, how do they fit into everything else you're doing? Because I'm assuming they're not standalone. That's right. Yep. Um, you know, so a lot of times in other pest management systems, we think about chemical controls as oftentimes the most effective options, um, but also because you know, because we're talking IPM, maybe our sort of last resort, right? That we want to try these other things, limit our reliance on chemical controls, but when we need them, darn, they are good, right? Uh -huh. the, the circumstance is quite different, I would say, when we're talking about wildlife and repellents, and it really speaks back to the need for an integrated system. So first off, uh, I would say that wildlife repellents are variously effective. So none of them are 100%, are certainly not, you know, the 90 plus percent efficacy that we look for in chemical controls for other uh -huh. uh, pests. And they're often quite expensive as well. So there are reasons why you may want to uh, use them as just a tool in the toolbox, right? They're not going to be uh -huh. a silver bullet by any means. When we think about repellents for wildlife, there's sort of two categories, um, contact repellents and area repellents. So a contact re repellent would be something that the wildlife actually has to come into contact with, usually via taste, sometimes causing some other kind of physical discomfort. Uh, contact repellents are most common in um, when we're talking about birds and bird control. A number of the products out there available for birds are contact uh -huh. repellents. When we're talking about mammals, deer in particular, the other category is really more relevant, and that is area repellents. And area huh. repellents still applied, you know, on or near the vegetation that you're trying to protect, but they use oftentimes odor to deter the wildlife causing Got damage. It. And so area is referring to the fact that they control a larger area than just the plant that they're applied to because it's usually, again, that odor that is, um, that is really causing the effect. 
So yeah, there's a lot of different ones. Um, I've played around with quite a few deer repellents. Some of the best ones, again, are the area repellents. Um, some of them are blood-based that elicit huh. sort of a, a prey response um, or fear in the in the animals or the deer. And another one is uh, egg-based repellents, also common for, for mammals or, or prey species. And that is thought to kind of mimic the sulfurous odor of predator urine, apparently. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know how they figured that one out. But but I've tried uh, different blood and egg-based repellents. And I think what's what's interesting about them is that their effectiveness is is really variable based on the context in which they are used. Some of it is what we talked about just a minute ago in terms of timing. Certainly, repellents are way more effective early on before damage starts or right when it's starting versus trying to come in and, and you know, move uh, animals uh-huh. out of a field while they're already established. The other thing is really about uh, alternatives, again, um, because a deer that has alternatives might get a whiff of a repellent and say, you know, this is kind of weird. I don't know about this. I'm just going to go over there. If there's not a good option over there, they're going to continue to challenge that repellent. They're going to say, well, it smells kind of weird, but I don't see any wolves around here or any dead deer around here. Maybe uh-huh. they'll taste it. And then they taste it and like, well, it's you know, pretty good. it actually tastes pretty good. It smells weird, but it tastes fine. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it really, in, in all of our, our research that we've done with the, with the repellents and looking at the literature and talking to growers, uh, very context specific and dependent on some of these other factors. Oh, I should say just just quickly, the area repellents, the nice thing about them is that because they do use odor, you don't necessarily have to treat a whole field. So we can talk about strips through a field. We can talk about perimeter applications. And huh. it's actually been a little bit of an issue in our research in that when we're trying to do a replicated uh, comparison of treated and non-treated with some of these area repellents in a field, oh, what we find it. is that when we apply to the treated plot, uh, we often get some level of a control effect in the neighboring control plot that was untreated and it's been frustrating for research but it's actually a really nice phenomenon to be able to observe to be able to have confidence in recommending that growers don't need to treat every acre necessarily depending on, on what they're doing yeah well that's really interesting james so are those things that require frequent reapplication yeah, so oftentimes they do require pretty frequent applications. Uh, some of the more professional or newer formulations of wildlife repellents are getting better at dealing with that. They're coming with more, you know, sticking agents and so forth to try to make them more weather safe. You know, uh, some of them are also pretty difficult to use. Um, some of the blood-based repellents are really classic for clogging. I mean, oh, okay. we're talking about basically blood meal. Um, there's a lot of work on the front end, like with the mixing and loading and screening and so forth that has to happen on the front end. And then you better clean out really good on the back end or you're going to have issues. So they're not always the most friendly products to use for different reasons. You know, it's not like a toxicity thing really, but... Um, Plugging nozzles and lines. Yes, and- yeah, convenience, uh, I think I would say more than anything. And have you seen any instances where any specific context where it's like, man, I'm, this was a good thing to invest in and this works? Or yeah. is it kind of like... We've seen it both ways. Um, but with the egg-based repellents, with the blood-based repellents for a deer, we have definitely uh, made money with those products at certain times. But it's not, it's never consistent. <laughs> From one field to the next, one species to the next, you really have to try to match the repellent and the approach and, and how you're using that repellent to your to your system. So yeah, it's uh 
it's a bit of a frustrating area. Repellents have a really bad rap. When I started into wildlife damage issues and looking at this, I didn't even want to do any repellent work, you know, because everybody, you know, says they're too expensive, uh, animals get habituated, et cetera, et cetera. Uh -huh. All those things have, have a measure of truth to them, um, but we have seen circumstances where repellents can be effective and where uh, growers are, again, you know, increasing their net profitability by using these products. This is because of my own personal interaction with growers. I've been in sweet corn fields where the propane cannons going, the guac boxes going, and the birds are just kind of like, eh. I wanted to ask you about the repellent product, which I believe is methyl anthranolate, James. Mm -hmm. Is that right? That's, that's one of them, yep. Is that the one that smells like grape? Yeah, it's actually, okay. it is a component in grape flavoring, which is kind of nice as far as it being, you know, non-toxic. So methylanthranolate is a, a contact type repellent product. It is thought to irritate the trigeminal nerve in birds, so sort of the facial nerves. Um, it is more commonly used, I think, in fruits, uh, a lot of tree fruit, small fruit for bird damage. Um, we actually got some support this year from the Michigan Potato Industry Commission to look at methylanthranolate in potatoes. Oh, yeah, for sandhill cranes, they yeah. um, are becoming really interested in eating potatoes. They, you know, they've evolved to eat uh, native tubers uh, in, in fields and wetlands, um, and they have learned to eat potatoes. And they um, oftentimes seem to be queuing off of vine kill, so they see when growers go in and desiccate. They, they really, um, as birds that walk into fields and across fields, a lot of times um, they, they really don't seem to spend a lot of time in potato fields that have full vines on but once those uh, vines go down at, at vine kill they just love it and they will go through and, and eat tubers so we're going to try that uh, later on this this uh, late summer fall in potatoes and see if that works um, one thing about methylanthranolate that people should be aware of is that it uh, breaks down very quickly it, it when it's in contact with soil or or out in the elements, it will uh, break down pretty quickly. Got it. And that's you know one of the weaknesses um, that we're concerned about, I guess, with potatoes is that once the vines go down, we're really applying to the soil, and so it probably is not going to persist very long. Um, it might be hard to have enough there to really be effective, but. Yeah, so methylanthranolate is, is one of the options for birds. Nice thing about it is that it has a very broad label. So you could use it in a lot of different crops potentially. And I, I haven't used it myself yet, but I'm uh, looking forward to learning more about it. So it sounds like something um, that if one of those things that if you're going to go that route, you need to do it frequently in, in front of when the crop is attractive. There's a there's another fantastic uh, repellent in corn, which is Avapel seed treatment. Um, I assume that your vegetable growers for sweet corn have the same issues that we do in field corn as far as uh, bird species eating the seed. I have, you know, sandhill cranes are a major one. Uh, turkeys might be a minor one and then some other species as well. Normally in corn, what happens is the corn as it's coming up, again, kind of a visual cue, the birds will pull up the corn seedling to access the endosperm of the seed that's still attached early on and then we'll eat that it. seed. Um, Avapel is a seed treatment um, that uh, upsets the bird's stomach and that uh, that has been wildly successful. It does come at a cost, but uh, certainly a, a big one if you're losing corn early in the season. I even, a grower contacted me earlier this summer and said that uh, he's losing crop not when the crop has come up, but actually right after planting. So they're they're now learning like basically the planter orientation, the row, simply like press wheel rows in the field, and they're able to to figure out where the rows of seed wow. are even before they're up. So um, that's been been pretty interesting. 
all of these measures come at a cost where we're talking about repellents or fencing or what. And uh, one thing I just want to throw out there uh, as far as IPM goes or the social element of wildlife damage management is that we have to find economic solutions. It's hard when we're talking about wildlife relative to other species to lay the full burden of wildlife damage and the cost of mitigation on agriculture and on farmers. Uh -huh. and, and that is because of what I mentioned earlier, the fact that we have stakeholder groups that are actively interested in campaigning for spending their money and their political power to have these species be present on the landscape. Uh -huh. So we know what I try to encourage is that uh, there may be solutions where we can redirect resources from the, the stakeholders that want to see these species on the landscape to the people that are incurring the costs, i.e. agriculture. And Wisconsin has a really cool system called the Wildlife Damage Claims and Abatement Program. And it's been in existence since the 1930s, probably not nearly enough conversation about it. But what they do is they take hunter license dollars, a million plus a year and they direct that into a fund that is used to implement mitigation measures like fencing, other deterrents, etc. Excellent. And then also to reimburse wildlife damage claims from farmers. They will actually pay claims like insurance, if you will, um, huh. to farmers that experience damage and that are doing some of these things on the front end to try to, to try to mitigate that damage. So I think a model like that would be fantastic for Michigan. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be hunter licensed dollars because we have seen a great decline in hunter numbers nationally and Michigan even more so, which is part of the problem that we have is that some of these game species aren't, aren't able to be managed through hunting anymore. But, uh -huh. you know, let's take, let's take money from the Autobahn folks. Let's take, you know, money from Nature Conservancy, whoever it is that's interested in, in, uh, in maintaining these, these wildlife populations and inform them about the costs of doing so and ask them to Got contribute, it. contribute to, to offsetting those costs. Yeah, bigger picture, taking models from other states where, where, where the folk who value the wildlife are helping shoulder the cost is something grower groups might think about. And um, certainly the need for more permits is something that growers are anxious to express, but there might be other ways too that you mm. could think about. Yeah, it, it's, it really can't be just your problem because of the, the sort of social political elements that are playing out in the background and the fact that you're never going to be successful as a grower on your own trying to manage these issues just on your farm because, you know, these wildlife, their uh, habitats, their home ranges are, are quite a bit larger than your farm. In most cases, some of them are migratory. Certainly, they're moving uh, many miles uh, to your neighbor's place and to, to other, other types of land uses. Gotcha. We did have another question come in, James, and maybe it's coming from the perspective of that, yeah, we have things eating seeds in other places besides corn. And so the question was, mm. have you ever seen people use avapel in crop besides corn? Mm. <laughs> well, it's a it's a little of a loaded question in the sense that, unfortunately, uh, the only crops that are on the label, I believe, are corn, including sweet corn, field corn, and rice, I think is the other one. But yes, so anecdotally, we do hear from growers that they have used Avapel on other crops, uh, in some cases successfully. Can't advocate for that off-label usage, but um, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be effective in other crops. An example is small grains oats, barley, uh, rye, um, certainly I've heard of cases of growers successful with that product in those crops. Um, you know, I would think that if you're losing uh, vegetable seeds, it could be effective. Again, can't officially recommend it. But, you know, what we can do is let the manufacturer know that uh, there are other cropping systems, other types of growers that are interested in their product. And can we get the label expanded out um, or do the research to to show the efficacy of yeah. other crops and, and try to get a, a broader label? Because um, certainly there's, there's other crops that are being lost or seed that's being lost. 
Absolutely. And if our listeners know their extension service, sometimes they can be a gateway to folks who are involved in the IR4 program, which help expand the labels of, of things like that. So James, I wanted to ask you next about um, about harassment. So um, it's pretty common, you know, you drive by a blueberry field or a sweet corn field and you see you know, ribbons hanging or those big owl eye things, even CDs that flash and kind of um, harass the animals. Squawk boxes are another one where you got distress calls, um, even lasers and drones. Um, do you have any advice on using harassment? Yeah. So I think in general, some principles, stacking those things, stacking multiple tools, um, like we talk about all the time in IPM is really important because not one of them is going to be perfectly effective. Switching switching it up, I think is also really important. So, you know, these are animals that learn. And if you're using one thing or using a couple of things all the time, every season for the, for the period that the crop is vulnerable, pretty soon you're going to have an individual or a group of, of animals that will figure that out and then they will learn from one another that those deterrents are not so much of a thing to be concerned about. So changing it up, you know, even if you're using the same tool, so say I've got um, some of the the flashing tape and I've got an audio deterrent. Well, you know, maybe um, I move those those tapes around to different parts of the field um, on a daily or a couple daily basis or change the calls that are coming out of the audio uh, deterrent or the timing of those things as far as, you know, maybe you've got a timer on the, on the squawk box or something. So trying to keep it as not novel um, and unexpected as possible and using multiple tools, I think it'll be the best bet. And, you know, and um, some growers have had really incredible success. We had a grower that came and spoke at Expo one year that is using a lot of those different things and doing weird things that other people aren't doing with them. Like he was huh. using the, the plastic owls, but he was putting it on like a 50 foot pole up in the air. So, you know, then it's not just, well, here's an owl effigy sitting on a fence post, but this thing is up in the air with the birds, like flopping around, you know, moving around. So trying to create that novelty um, that I think can really put off those animals and being creative about it. What time frame does novelty need to occur on? Is it for is it days or, or hours or weeks that you need to switch things up? I wish I knew more of those details. I think it's certainly going to depend on what species you're dealing with and their behavioral and social dynamics. You know, for example, birds. Some birds are, are highly social and birds like blackbirds or, or crows, they actually have like social roles. So crows will have a scout bird that is charged with going out, checking out an area, checking out the food source, and then the huh. other birds cue off of that. So, you know, I think you really need in any IPM system, but particularly in wildlife, when need to dig much deeper into the sort of social and behavioral dynamics of these different species and then how that applies to our approach. And those are the questions that I have every day that I wish somebody would answer for me. So I think this is where I'm an agronomist that's playing in wildlife. This is where we need to be partnering with our wildlife experts that maybe never thought once about agriculture. I, I mentioned Catherine Lindell before, you know, she's, uh, she's an ornithologist. She's a bird expert who became interested in this issue of damage because she's interested in, the, in those bird species. And so drawing on expertise of folks like that or, or Dr. Gary Roloff in the wildlife department at MSU, he's been a great partner for us, uh, issues with deer because he understands those, those aspects of how those, how those animals function and how they make decisions and behave. 
I didn't want to end the show without talking about the lethal option. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, what are some things that growers should consider about when they're thinking of shooting or trapping an animal that maybe aren't immediately apparent to you? Um, so there are a few things that are important to understand about lethal control. It can be an effective option. It's not always an effective option, even if you may reduce the amount of damage that's occurring within the context of a, a season or a crop. It doesn't mean that you're going to have long-term success uh-huh. with that. We put together an article for Extension a while back. I can't believe looking at it, it's actually 2015. But the title is, Do I Need a Permit to Control Wildlife on My Farm? And that is a nice review of the okay, sort of different cool. categories of wildlife and what Got permits it. are required. The first thing I think to realize is that different agencies are charged with managing wildlife species dependent on what they are yeah. and how they're utilized, if you will. The main ones are, which ones are state game species that would be managed by the DNR? Uh-huh. And which ones are species like migratory birds or other species that are managed by the federal government? And that would be primarily U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services or gotcha. for growers trying to intersect fish and wildlife would be USDA Wildlife Services. Services. So there's actually, there's an arm of USDA that is focused on wildlife damage management, and they can help growers address issues with these federally managed species and also intersect with the actual regulatory agency, which is U.S. Fish and Wildlife. So some examples, when we're talking about birds, for example, starlings, crows, grackles, blackbirds, pigeons, house sparrows, All of those are considered birds that do not require a permit to Uh manage. So if you have issues with any of those birds, lethal control is an option that you have available. You don't have to get a permit. If we're talking about game birds, Canada geese, turkeys, mute swans, pheasants, quail, those are all managed by the Department of Natural Resources at the state level as game species. So they would be the ones to provide permits for those. Migratory birds, herons, cranes, gulls, waterfowl would all be at the federal level. So you'd be working with wildlife services and U.S. Fish and Wildlife. You know, and then within those, there may be multiple types of permits that are available to help growers deal with a certain species. So for deer, there's there's like three or four categories of permits that might be applicable to your situation. You could have a crop damage permit. You can have what's called uh, deer management assistance permits. You can have regular, you know, tags during the hunting season. So there's different strategies there, even within a certain species. So you have to talk with the folks that represent those agencies and get all the details. Something else I think that's really important for people to think about when they're going to be interacting with these agencies and and looking at lethal control is that every regional office for these agencies has different staff with different levels of experiences and different opinions and approaches to wildlife damage. There really isn't, I would say in Michigan anyway, an overall sort of agency policy or tone on the issue of wildlife damage. So the response that you get is going to be highly dependent on who you talk to, who's in your regional office, and how you as a grower approach the issue. So if you go in there hot as hell, you know, talking about how all these animals are costing so much money and they all need to die. Many times you're going to get a negative reaction from these folks who are charged with maintaining, protecting, conserving these wildlife species. And they're going to be more slow to try to help you or to make these tools available. If you go in there with a measured approach, if you have taken the steps of doing everything else in addition to or before lethal control, if you can you know, show them that hey, I'm using repellents, I've 
got fencing, I'm using these other deterrents. And beyond that, if you can quantify the losses that you are incurring, which can be very difficult to do, but if you can put a number to your economic loss, now it's not a requirement by any means, but that I think can really help make the case as well. And, and also help to educate these agency representatives as far as the gravity of the problem and the reason why you're interested in accessing some of these permits or, or uh, other tools. Yeah, and I can imagine even a simple picture of the damage might be helpful um, when yeah. you're talking with those folks. Yeah, pictures help a lot. Um, oftentimes, when you pursue these permits, you will have a visit, just depending on uh, what the Got context it. is and what agency you're talking about. In some cases, there's costs. In some cases, not for these permits. In some cases, there's reporting requirements for, for those permits as well in terms of when you take an animal, what type of animal. Oftentimes, you're not allowed to... If, it depends if it's a game species. Game species like deer, they have to be utilized as uh -huh. part of the permit process. Uh, Non-game species, usually you're not allowed to utilize them. So you have to show that you dispose of them in some approved way um, and didn't eat them or, or sell them or anything like that. So yeah, there can be quite a few rules to follow. But in general, these agency folks are interested in what you're doing and want to try to help, but you just want to come to the table with the right information, the right attitude to try to get that assistance. Got it. Well, I think that's a good note to end on, James. And if folks have questions or interest in this topic of wildlife damage management, feel free to reach out to myself and I'll try to connect you with the right resources. We also have a page uh, through extension IPM that is dedicated to wildlife damage management resources. So folks, I am going to share that webpage in the show notes so that you can access it if you like to. Looks like there's a lot of good resources. I want to thank you very much for your time today and for sharing what you've learned to you've engaged with the issue and we really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been great.